did. <laughs> I have to stop saying it like that. <laughs> it just makes me silly. And sometimes episodes aren't silly. I'm right. Like, this one's not silly. This one's not. This is like a serious episode. I mean, it's not like serious, serious. But this I mean, is like, it's not like about a guy that lives in a cave with baby mice. You know, like our normal episodes. <laughs> can we find that guy? <laughs> Where is that guy? No. If you're that guy, you can contact us. We want to talk to you. Why do you? But every so often, like you know, what much you to uh, Ken Friedman's chagrin, we do an episode that's like about like an authentic, real, awesome human being that is super talented. And uh, there's no gimmick behind it. There's no gimmick. That's a better way to put it. Yeah. It's not like serious, but like there's no, there's no gimmick. It's a real conversation. Mm -hmm. This is real talk. This is real talk with James Sienna. Real talk. Real talk. (laughs) True story. (laughs) What does he say? Like why are you hanging out with those no man having anyway r kelly real talk oh you're talking yeah. about those r kelly real talk yeah yeah oh those mm-hmm. r kelly's are great did she say there were other guys there well did she say there were other guys there? you're talking about the whole in the closet oh no series? not in the closet their song real talk have you seen the whole in the closet of course series? i have yeah they're fantastic. They're amazing. They're so good. I learned about those way too late in life. Me too. Like I learned about And then about I them watched like them all yeah. at one time. Okay. And then they just got deeper and deeper and deeper. And then it just gets more and more the insane. mind of that guy. Yeah. We should talk to R. Kelly. Do you think he would talk to us? I think no one else really wants to talk to him right now. I think he's sort of infamous. Maybe uh, if we promise not to talk about his girl cult. What if what if we end up talking to him and become part of his girl cult? I mean, I would say that given the other people we've talked to so far, if we haven't fallen under mind control and joined a cult yet, mm-hmm. we're mm-hmm. probably not susceptible. I feel like I'm susceptible. I just haven't found my cult yet. I also think we're above his age range, so I don't think he's going to try his like mind mojo on us. Like, I think he likes women under the age of like 20 oh yeah yeah i think we're a little out okay well then you know maybe he just let's let's talk to his agent we'll let's see talk what to his agent. we'll have our people call your people r kelly. r kelly if you're out there but in the meantime in the let's meantime, get into some serious art and some serious artists yeah uh we're talking to james sienna um who's a prolific, incredible contemporary artist of this time. And we're fortunate enough to call him a friend of the show as well. Yes. Um, we're, we're lucky enough to, to know him mm-hmm. and to, to have him agree to sit down and have a conversation with us about what it means to be a working a, artist, a successful working artist. Yeah, which are, those are all rare things that you can put in one sentence. It's you know? true. Like, yeah. and to have a career that's lasted this long. I mean, he's he's been in the Pace Gallery for a, a, a very long time. He's also um, been in the Whitney Biennial, uh, and he's just a really smart, interesting guy, and a WFMU supporter and fan. And he's also created artwork uh, for WFMU specifically. 
and dumplings. He's created dumplings. Oh, don't for even WFMU don't too. even get me started about those dumplings. That's another on one of dumpling those. Day. That's another one of those things. It's like I didn't know who I was talking to when I was complimenting his dumplings. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, really? hey, baby, I really like your dumplings. <laughs> and he's like, girl, I love your dumplings. Did he no, say that? No, he didn't. <laughs> <laughs> but I didn't make dumplings that day. Yeah. But, oh. yeah, um, James Sienna and his little crew, they come in during the marathon, and they make all these incredible homemade dumplings. There, and just, like, just like hundreds of them. Oh, there were so many. Not hundreds. Yeah. Hundreds of dumplings. Hundreds of dumplings, no. like four people. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> four people made hundreds of dumplings, which is way more impressive than like hundreds of people making like four dumplings. <laughs> <laughs> so we've got, um, so please, if if you're a James Sienna fan, uh, uh, you're going to love this interview because he just uh, gives us so much information and detail about um, the life of an artist and, and his life specifically. Yeah. I feel like we could do like a verbal hashtag, right? Like listen to this if you're a fan of James Sienna, if you're a fan of modern art, if you're a fan of sculpture, sculpture, if you're a fan of lithographs, paintings. paintings. Um, There's so many. R. So. Kelly. If you're. <laughs> <laughs> do you know what we also have in the beginning of this episode? We'll probably put it on right after we're done talking. Like right after we're done talking right now? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What? what do we have? We've got also uh, the amazing, amazing audio <laughs> from our friend Nick Fiera, oh, who yeah. did an art-related intro song for us. I love Nick. Mm-hmm. So this is in the theme of artists, mm-hmm. and that's what he what's what his assignment was. I haven't even heard this, and yet. he I can't delivered wait to see us. What he came up with. Oh, you want to listen to it? Yeah, I do. Let's listen to it right. Now, should we introduce the show again since I flucked it up in the beginning? You flucked it up? I had a moment there where I was going to say fucked it up, (laughs) panicked, and then remembered that we have a podcast all in the same second. And so it turned from like, like it just flucked it. So what are we listening to? You're listening to In Real Life. I'm Emily. And I'm Kim Zilla. Hey Kim. Hey Emily. Uh, it's uh it's me, Nick. How you doing? Heard you guys are talking art this week, and I thought maybe I could help. Maybe shed a little light on the subject. But, uh, but since you can't see light over the radio, maybe I'll shed some sound on it, huh?
noted American author Ralph Waldo Emerson, who has one of my favorite middle names, once said that uh, every artist was first an amateur. But uh, that can be said for the guy that runs the Tilt the World, too, I guess, right? was a painter, but from all the photographs of him, he looked kind of like a Civil War battlefield surgeon, which isn't a bad thing. We needed those guys. Uh, He's been quoted as saying that uh, creativity takes courage. Well, you know what else takes courage? Getting out of bed sometimes. You know what else takes courage? It's going up to that girl at the coffee shop that you got a crush on. Maybe just giving her a little wink and a smile. You know what else takes courage? Challenging one of your best friends to a contest to see who can eat the most rubber bands. Because you know neither of you guys have health insurance. Photographer uh, Ansel Adams once said, You don't take a photograph, you make it. Uh, but also, George Carlin once said, You don't take a shit, you leave a shit. this next one, but uh, Bob Ross once said, we don't make mistakes, just happy little accidents. I think people really like that quote because it came from Bob Ross, but sometimes I like to pretend it came from John Wayne Gacy, and I don't think it'd be nearly as popular. One more for you. Ancient Roman poet Horace famously said that a picture is a poem without words. You know what else is? A blank piece of paper. But I, I, no, so I refer to myself as an artist, although I mostly make 
paintings in two-dimensional things. I would refer to myself as an artist who is concerned with intricacy and emergent form. But I also contradict myself on an increasingly frequent basis. <laughs> uh, so it, over the last few years, I've made a foray into some figurative work. Oh, that's, uh, that's interesting. Yeah, I've, and it's, a, it's sort of a side thing that I do. Um, hmm. And I made a sculpture show recently, which had absolutely no flat work in it. But immersion form is, I think, you know, a pretty good catch-all. I, I, I create procedures that I follow oh. um, when I make my work. And I, I, I talk about legal and illegal moves in my work. Uh, so I set up certain constraints. Some people call that a rule-based hmm. art. Uh, and I kind of shy away from the term abstraction. Yeah. I like terms like procedural, iterative, emergent. Uh, yeah, and so uh, it's a pretty wide umbrella, and I and I'm, I do go through a lot of changes. I have I have like sort of signature works and works that are really quite wide ranging and sometimes uh, surprising to to my audience or to even people who aren't my usually no, people who are my audience are accustomed to seeing a certain type of thing. We'll see a thing that I've done and be very surprised, either positively or negatively. I've had plenty of both. <laughs> Have you always, <laughs> like, uh, even when you were going to school uh, for art? I mean, has it always been in this form, emergent form, with 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 no. structure and energy? No. Uh, I went to uh, a university. I didn't go to art school. And um, I, would, I, I, I learned a lot about technique in, in school. Uh, I went to Cornell University, which is a big land-grant school in upstate New York. It mm -hmm. even has an agricultural component. There's a, actually a state school attached to Cornell, the only Ivy League school where you can actually attend and pay state tuition. So I had all these agricultural student friends. And, uh, so the, uh, even though, you know, it's very, it's procedural now, the work was, I think the work related more to the times I lived in, um, and the fact that a university was the place where I really grew up. Uh, in fact, I actually grew up literally at a university. I lived on the Stanford campus when I was a teenager. My father worked at Stanford. And, um, and actually, Cornell was very attractive to me because it was similar to Stanford in terms of its size and its diversity hmm. and uh, I didn't want to be in California anymore I wanted to be east I wanted to be in New York ultimately but I got as far as Ithaca essentially <laughs> <laughs> isolated Ithaca New York as they like to call it uh, and I, yeah, I think it was also influenced by the, by the psychedelic times 
uh, both in the ingestion of <laughs> the substances and in the morphologies associated with it in, mm-hmm. in the, uh, not so much in, in fine art, but in popular art. I'm referring to things like the, you know, the Fillmore East posters and the Winterland posters and all that mm. fantastic lettering and, um, and then the popularity of people like, uh, you know, Gustav Klimt and Friedensreich oh, yeah. Hundertwasser, these, these people who were, you know, generating really intricate, uh, overwhelming images. Uh, yeah. Hmm. So, no, I, I went through a lot of changes uh, at Cornell. I, I did a lot of photography. I used to drop acid and run around in the Binghamton woods with my girlfriend, and we would, we would, you know, we did outrageous things. I mean, we'd carry prisms and hold them up to things and take pictures of them, and, and I would tone the photographs. I, I developed my own photographs. I had a dark room. And I would tone the photographs and, you know, blue, greens, and oranges, and they, they, they look like, uh, they look like, well, they look very dated, I think, right now. Yeah, they look, they look like <laughs> they look at that time. Yeah, like yeah. what you would do in an experimental college stage, or just that it was, uh, like, the no, origins looked, of of your art? Yeah, it looked like, it looked like psychedelic. Art yeah. in some way, and I mean, I, I, I'm not afraid of that term. I mean, in fact, I used to be dismissed in the mm-hmm. '80s because I was making things like this, and people would say, "You know, your work is too psychedelic <laughs> for our gallery," and I was getting turned down all, all the time. And when I finally did start to exhibit, people would say, "I love what you're doing. It's so psychedelic. Ah. The tastes had changed, you know, and that's." That's just that's just part of being an artist. So, yeah, well, I didn't really change, but the world around me changed. Yeah, yeah, so. I do wonder about that because it seems like there are, like, that if you if you're in the visual art world, I mean, but I guess any any art world really that like the trends in terms of what is. Uh, I, I guess sort popular. of like in vogue, yeah, or popular yeah. or considered to be um, like the part of the, the current like cultural mm-hmm. zeitgeist of high art. Like mm. that if you have a long career, it seems like you could fall in and out of that a few times. Oh, God. I've, I've, well, I was out of it for a very long time. Um, I didn't start exhibiting really regularly until I was 40. Oh, wow. That was 20 years ago. Okay. Yeah, and I, I supported myself for a long time as a, um, primarily as a mat cutter, but also as a picture framer. Huh. I, I, I worked in a frame shop for a long time. No, not a long time. I worked in a frame shop for what well, felt like a long time because I was employed. <laughs> <laughs> and... After two and a half years, I think, there, I, I quit and started my own business. Oh. But it was, not a, it was not an ambitious business. It was a subsistence business. Mm-hmm. So I was kind of an anti-growth <laughs> <laughs> businessman. I, I wanted to work the minimum amount in order to support my habit of making art. Mm. Yeah. And, uh, 
but I believed in this, actually, I believed in this uh, um, commonly held belief, I think, around that time, or probably prior to that time. Because in the 80s, there were a lot of young people getting attention, and, and they were falling out of favor pretty quickly, and I was seeing people rise and fall during the East Village period, and then mm-hmm. early to mid, and then late 80s. And I showed a little bit around that. But I remember my first wife saying to me, someone and some people will love your work one of these days. And you just have to wait it out. And I think I remember saying something like, I don't think I'm going to really start showing much until I'm 40. And I, it took so much pressure off of me to to, to come to that realization, and I didn't because in the in the early there was a period when the youth village was exploding, and you know it just seemed like you could you know swing a dead cat and see a hit an hit a, an exhibiting artist mm-hmm. in those days, and um, and when I came to that realization, it just took an enormous amount of pressure off, and I decided to just you know settle down and make work. Yeah. Do you do you find that um, you learn the business along the way? Because I, I went to university also for, for art. And with that, you know, I learned techniques and all of that. And then I graduated and then I had to make ends meet and I worked in the service industry and all of that and you know I tried to get in galleries and then you end up you know just living the grind of life Um, but I didn't feel that school even art teachers that there's any um, any education on the on the actual business side of of selling your art marketing your art learning how galleries really work um, did did you learn this on your own? How did you figure Absolutely. out? How did you figure well, this out? Days, <laughs> well, in those days, at, at Cornell, the faculty was almost a hundred percent resentful artists, you know, who taught because they had to and would have loved to exhibit and work full time as artists. Um, and I, but now there are classes called uh, professional practice. Mm. Uh, I teach at SCA. I teach in the master's degree program at SCA, School of Visual Arts in Manhattan. Yeah. And there are some classes like that. I don't, I don't really think those classes belong in in schools. I, I think figuring it out is part of the mm. thing. But it's, it's not that hard to figure out. Um, and I talk with students about it a lot. I mean, I, I don't talk about it directly and giving them advice, you know, this is a gallery that might be interested in your work. I actually talked to them about how I decided I really wouldn't make an effort to exhibit until I was 40. Um, so, yeah, and now we have social media, we have so many galleries, uh, uh, but I also, I think I've taught a little of this by example. Well, for a while, after the crash of 2008, I started a gallery. 
and it was a very underground kind of thing in my building here on Canal Street. I, I'm, uh, my, studi- I, I, my studios are three rooms, three small jewelers lofts in Chinatown. So I gave up one of those on an t- intermittent basis and would give shows to artists who I thought deserved more attention. Hmm. And, and I would... And my students would come to these shows, and so I think I was teaching by example. You know, you know, you know the old adage: if you don't like the news, go out and make some of your own. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, if you don't like what's going on in the art world, do something about it. And I called the and and you know that everyone was writing about how the galleries are struggling and suffering in the recession, and I wanted to say, you know, what about the artists? They're suffering. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I started a gallery called Sometimes. And it was called Sometimes because it was only open sometimes. <laughs> but it was also called Sometimes. <laughs> it was also called Sometimes because sometimes the artists have to take it upon themselves and make some news of their own. Hmm. And it was wildly popular. Yeah. Um, not commercially so, but it was... It got critical attention, and some of the artists yeah. got a nice little push and got the attention of some other people, some co- real commercial galleries, noticed them. Um, and um, I'm not doing it right now. I took over this space because I need it. But, uh, you know, the art world, it, it, there, it's, it's actually... A, it's a misnomer to call the art world the art world because there are many worlds now. It's such a diverse and complex uh, series of institutions. You know, there, there, there's so many galleries and so many galleries doing so many different things and having different programs. For example, you know, there's a gallery on um, Ludlow Street. I gave a show to uh, someone who is now showing at this other gallery on Ludlow Street. And um, and I went to I dutifully went to see it after she let me know that she was having this show, a few months after she had a show at some time. And I looked at the at the press release and the and the uh, gallery said, This is the artist's uh, first exhibition in New York. I said, oh, wait a minute. <gasps> I gave her the first exhibition yeah. in New York. And finally, I met one of the directors of the gallery, and the, the gallery is called Klaus von Nickstagen. So it's like, who is this yeah. German? <laughs> you know, I can picture some, it already. <laughs> some count from you know, you know, Leipzig, you know, opens a little gallery on Ludlow Street, and mm-hmm. you know, some mm-hmm. little toy from his rich father or something. Yeah, he has and a scarf, I, I think. No, but let me finish the story. It's okay. funny because I, I, I finally met. Uh, an artist, he actually has a, um, a pen name, or a brush name, uh, Butt Johnson. And his real name is Rob Holt, and he is the founder of Klaus von Nickstagen Gallery. Uh-huh. And I met him, and I, and I said, why is it called Klaus von Nickstagen? Oh, it's just a made-up name. It means Klaus who doesn't say anything, or something like that. Von Nickstagen means, you know, the silent one. Or <laughs> <laughs> and I said, well, you know, Rob, I do have a bone to pick with you. I love the program you're doing. And, you know, 
And it turns out it was an artist-run gallery. Oh, and it's wow. much more serious than sometimes ever was or will be. Um, and and I, I explained to him, I said, you know, this artist you, you showed a year or so ago, her first show was with me, with Sometimes. And he said, oh, yes, I know. You know, he knew about Sometimes. Ah. We've since become very good friends, but I did have to correct the record, <laughs> and he he fixed it on her uh, on her page. Yeah. But but yeah, that's another example <laughs> of you know there are artists founding galleries and are people who are sort of in between, or people who are former artists uh, founding galleries, and that's that's I, I applaud that aspect of the art world. My first show was at a gallery called Pierogi. Are you familiar with it? No. So it was called Pierogi because it was in Williamsburg when Williamsburg mm. was very Polish. Mm. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. It was right down the street from Kasha's, mm-hmm. you know, Bedford and um, North Ninth. Mm-hmm. And Pierogi was run by an artist who just, he wanted to do something about things, you know, and he wanted to help artists. And uh, he's now moved, he's actually moved to Manhattan. And uh, at my first show with him, and uh, and now he he's still doing lots of shows, and he runs a flat file program where I think a couple of thousand artists' work can be seen on an appointment basis. Yeah. Works on paper. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. So so the the great irony about all this in terms of my personal life is that I'm showing with a, a big gallery, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> which is. <laughs> <laughs> Something I never really thought would happen. Yes. I was kind of content to be... Uh, I was content to be a, a well-known or a reasonably well-known second-rate artist. That, that's a good ambition. <laughs> well, you've exceeded that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I guess so. I don't... Maybe. <laughs> Time will tell, ladies. Time does it, will tell. Does it feel like you've made it? Um... No, I don't. I don't really believe in making it. I mean, in a way, I, you know, to to other people, I guess it seems like I've made it. Yeah. But they're not me, you know. When when someone wants to be someone else, I'm pretty suspicious of that. But mm-hmm. maybe I'm changing the subject. Did I make it? I feel extremely fortunate. <laughs> I feel extremely fortunate. Uh, I have plenty of worries. I continue to have plenty of worries. Um, I have good years and bad years. Uh, you know, when you, I, I guess I'm considered an established artist rather than an emerging artist. Yeah. But, um, you know, and I get my work is now put up at auction sometimes, and sometimes it goes for less than it would cost in a gallery, sometimes it goes for for more, and it's it. There's no rhyme or reason to it. I have a student who watches auction prices all the time. He's <laughs> I don't know how he gets any work done because he's always <laughs> ripping out his phone and oh, I have an alert! So and so's work is up for auction. And he's always trying to buy buy things, you know, when they when they're sort of slipping through the cracks. Uh-huh. 
And I finally asked him to please stop telling me when my wake goes up. <laughs> I don't want to know. That must be such an odd experience. And then he said, oh, experience. you didn't hear? Pardon me? Oh, they said that must be such an odd experience, like hearing about your work going up for auction somewhere. Yeah, like a stock, like a stock price, you know, in yeah, a way. Exactly. I mean, yeah, I, I'm kind of curious about that. Like the, like the business of collecting art for investment purposes, not really to collect it because of someone liking the art and what your thoughts are on kind of that side of the, of the art world business. I try not to think about it. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's a, yeah, it, I, I, just to finish the story about the, the former student who watches oh, the yeah. auction price, yeah, I said, you know, you're, I'm glad you're not telling me. And he said, Oh, did you hear about the Rockefeller sale? And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, you had a drawing in the Rockefeller sale. This is when, the, you know, John B. Rockefeller the yeah. died at 100 years old last year. Yeah. And they auctioned off a lot of his work. It was a big success. And I forgot. I knew he owned a drawing, but I forgot to check on it. And it went for just an insanely high price. I mean, like crazy. <laughs> and, and it must have just been the passion of the sale. Mm. I mean, it was a it was a defensible drawing. I like it. I accept it. I, yeah, <laughs> I'd like to have it, <laughs> but it was yeah. It, it just didn't make any sense. Uh, yeah. And so, so that yeah, that draw, buying for investment purposes mm. um, is it's it's sort of a necessary evil, you know. When we, what do we do, you know, when somebody, who, you know, whose politics we abhor buys work? Or what do we do when the Koch brothers, you know, give mass, vast amounts of money to the Metropolitan? Mm. Right, yeah. You know, we take the money. <laughs> right. <laughs> and we fight like hell to defeat their candidates on, you know, climate change or whatever other madness that they're sponsoring on the other side. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's sort of yeah. the same principle, I think, of, like, you know, uh, maybe, like, working for someone that isn't, um, like, trying to do the most good in your job, even if you're working for, like, a company or an overall organization that, like, you don't totally stand behind, like, at the end yeah. of the day, you know, many of us. Like we, we just need the paycheck. We got to be able to support ourselves to be able to do the good or important work that we want to be doing. Right. Yeah. Sleeping with the enemy. Yes. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I, I, you know, I, I, I don't, I don't really participate in that employment thing, except I guess as a as a faculty member at SCA, mm -hmm. and I do rail against certain things when I'm at SCA to my students. You know, I'm. Uh, I mean, I tell them it's insane the amount of money they're spending and how, you know, sure. it, the burden of the student debt that they that they accumulate, you know, is something that I never had to deal with. My father taught it with, uh, worked at Stanford, so we got a 50% discount at Cornell, and then I worked my way through school. Mm. I came out of school with no debt. But that was, a, that was wow. more than 40 years ago. That's amazing. That's and uh, what's, what's happening now is just—it's—it's it's appalling. And uh, oh yeah. But then again, see, there there are artists to the rescue. You know, have you heard of the Bruce High Quality Foundation? 
No. It's a collective of artists. Um, it's been, I guess they've been really successful. They've started a, an art school. And um, they have an unpaid faculty, a very low-paid faculty, and they don't charge the students anything. And the students don't get a real accredited degree, but they, I know people who teach there, and I know people who do visiting artists things there, and, you know, um, that model, I think, is something that might, in the future, become attractive. If I were really in a financial crisis, I would consider mentoring young students or young artists. Yeah. Uh, and, and there are people that do that around the world. Actually, the person to whom I married is French, uh, and she went to Ecole des Beaux-Arts in Paris, but before she did, to prepare for the exam, she had private lessons with a, a Japanese artist who lived in, who still lives in Paris. Oh. Yeah, and that, that kind of model, I think, is, is, a, is an attractive one. Yeah. Yeah, I would, I would think that there's more opportunities and worlds within this world that kind of emerge once you're once you're more established and have a good reputation not only just as an artist but um with the business and also with being able to teach or lecture um that that's a that's a really great opportunity to continue to share with people your knowledge yeah i mean there's a there's a whole circuit around the country of, you know, visiting artists, and mm. a lot of us do that. We get invited to, you know, to go to, say, Ohio State for a couple of days or, or you know, any number of places and give a lecture and do studio visits. Mm. Yeah, and we do these one-on-one -on -one visits with uh, usually graduate students. Yeah. Um, that's, of course, part of the, part of the university system or, or art school system. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about your creative process at all and where you get into it? I can try. Yeah. I can try. <laughs> That's all we it's can do. It's difficult. Because <laughs> oftentimes, oftentimes I'm, in a, I'm in a conversation with the work I'm making and the work, once the work gets to a certain point and it has its own momentum, it starts to tell me what to do. Does that make any sense? It makes perfect kind of, sense. I will say that uh, I will quote Chuck Close, inspiration is for amateurs. <laughs> so, you know, not to, not to throw a wet blanket on your, on your question. That's fine. Uh, no, I, I, I don't, you know, uh, it, it's almost a harsh thing to say because, of course, we're, in, we're, 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 you know, what is inspiration? Inspiration is like what well, it almost sounds like breathing, right? I mean, it should mm -hmm. be just part of life, you know. Um, and 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 so what what generates a work uh, is different depending on how old you are. That's how I see it now. And I think when I I think when I turned fifty, I started to kind of agree with Chuck's uh, adage because I was. And, you know, I didn't go in the studio saying, gee, what am I going to do today, you know? I already had so many different morphologies, different kinds of work that I've done. 
and things that I put in motion, because I'm oftentimes working on more than one thing at a time. Mm-hmm. But it's which thing am I going to move forward a little bit today? Yeah. Um, I've been quoted a lot as, as saying, I don't make marks, I make moves, mm-hmm. uh, which is not true. I make marks and moves. Some like the moves are marks, and some of the marks are moves. <laughs> and, I, and there's articulation. I articulate moves sometimes, so there's marks that are not as important to the, to the actual uh, thought process behind the work. And do I, you know, sometimes I work from the outside in, and sometimes I work from the inside out. You know, for many, many years, I'm trying to be a little cautious. To dis- I don't want to really describe what I'm doing now because it's very new and very exciting and very, very different in some fundamental ways. Although the two people who've seen things say, wow, but that looks like you, even though it's quite different yeah. on a certain level. Um, and when I'm, when, you know, I'm known mostly for these enamel and aluminum paintings, mm-hmm. and I started making them in the early 90s. Uh, and before that, I was working on other kinds of metal and different sizes, and then I kind of standardized the size in 93. And it became increasingly clear that I was trying to make little big paintings. I was trying to pack all the power of a, of, of a painting of, of, you know, ambitious scale which I was very suspicious of and still am. Um, uh, and I realized I was making compressed paintings. There was a lot of pressure in these paintings. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So, so they were like trying to be larger, but they were confined to this, yeah. this very small scale, with the scale of a kind of head and shoulders, like 19 by 15 inches. Yeah. And, um, and then I started to scale it up, I think, to the... To the of, I guess, 38 by 30, 39 by 30. So, and that was a, that was kind of a constraint that I put on myself. I've since, you know, actually in 93, I also violated that principle and made a series of very large drawings uh, for a poetry book that was going to be very, very small mm-hmm. by a very good friend of mine, Jeffrey Young, who's a poet and runs a a gallery up in Great Barrington, Massachusetts. And he wanted to do a little book called Pockets of Leap, consisting of little tiny short poems. And he asked me to do the drawings. I said, well, yeah, I might do gigantic drawings, and we'll shrink them down wow. for the book. Uh-huh. And I I had no market at all, and and uh, I just made these things. And, and actually, he sold all 10 of them to a long-time, who's now a guy who's now a long-time collector of my work. So the process kind of oscillates. You know, I'll, I'll make I'll make these intense, small uh, metal and aluminum things, and then then I'll make some prints. I'll make some etchings. I'll make some lithographs. I'll work on a big stone lithograph. Um, and I remember I, I was making some paintings called comb paintings. So they're these kind of interlocking combs, you know, like combs that you comb your hair with, but you know, what if you had a, a yellow comb on one side of the painting and a black comb on the other side, and they kind of interlock? Yeah. And I, and I made a lot of these things, and so I, you know, at a at a shop in uh, Long Island, a great lithography shop, I made a a, a stone whistle called Fast Cones. So I'm going to make this entire print 
in a day. Mm. Instead of, you know, not painting, taking a month or two or, mm-hmm. or more. Um, so, but, but, you know, part of my process is very much about using different t- techniques and materials to make things that are somehow consistent with my my visual thinking. And, uh, and so, I'm, you know, I'm, I work in painting, drawing, print making, uh, and sculpture. Uh, and, and where does, and where does inspiration come from? Where is that, you know, what is the thought accelerator that, that brings, brings it to the, to the, to the work? Lately, I've been sort of thinking about sound and somehow physically depicting sound. Oh, interesting. And I think I'll be a little, I'll be a little vague about that too, because it's in the new work. But yeah, but, yeah I've been, I'm an amateur uh, musician. Mm-hmm. And so, another person with whom I am married, and I, we, we sing together and play music. Oh. Usually for our own enjoyment. I mean, we occasionally play publicly, but not very infrequently. Yeah. And I, I, and it's that whole idea of vibration and sound and, and the, even the therapeutic aspect of, of playing a guitar. It never really so good you feel to play a guitar, especially when you can play something reasonably successfully. So you're holding this vibrating object against your chest, and it, it resonates into your body as well as sending sound out of itself, you know, towards the people listening to you. Yeah. And I've been thinking about that. I think I kind of let it happen, you know, I think it started happening in the in the work before I realized what it was, and I started to refer to some of these things as resonators or oscillators. And, and I've made some, I've made quite a number of things using this kind of, this sort of core concept, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. And now that I'm aware of it, I think I can manipulate it a little bit. But it's had all kinds of morphologies. It's had painting, drawings, uh, and embossed uh, monoprints that I'm doing down in Florida on half-inch thick handmade paper. You know, so, and these these interactions with materials and with printmakers allow me to, to, to sort of move the work forward. And, and like I said at the beginning of the answer to this question, you know, now I'm I'm 60 years old. I, I, you know, I don't really think that hard about what I'm going to do when I stare at a blank surface. You know, I think of which thing am I going to do? How am I going to? How am I going to make this experience both meaningful for me and hopefully meaningful for people looking at the thing? Yeah. And not, how can I do this without repeating myself? Mm-hmm too much, you know, kind of make it fun or disturbing or both, you know. Um, and I mentioned those uh, figurative things. Uh, I, I, I got very excited about doing them when I started doing them because they were just so, so such a violation of everything I believed in, in a way, you know. Um, they weren't really rule-based. They weren't really right, marks becoming moves. But then as I got into making them, I realized they actually, you know, a face is a structure that you have to somehow reckon with. Yeah. And I realized that, you know, all art making is 
rule-based on some level, at some point. You know, even the, uh, what seems to be the most subjective work, uh, you know, say somebody like Judith Bernstein, who's known for painting, you know, practically pornographic images, you know, penises shaped like guns with bullets firing out of them and, you know, horrendous screeds against Donald Trump and, you know, painted in this incredibly raw yeah. way. She's obeying her own kind of set of constraints, you know. And sometimes these are constraints against, like, don't paint over that, let that one mark speak for what you're what you're trying to express. That's so interesting, that idea of like yeah. creating a set of constraints as you progress as an artist. Like this idea mm -hmm. that like part of what, I, I like that way of saying it, that like it's sort of part of your, you creating an aesthetic or an identity as an artist. Well, I think we all do it. I mean, yeah. when, you, when, you, when you buy a, a canvas or a, a piece of paper or a block of, Marble, you know, it's got a certain size and it's got a certain, yeah. it has have material qualities that you have to somehow reckon with, whether you obey or disobey the, the laws of physics or conservation or durability mm -hmm. and all that, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm very interested in those questions too. Yeah. So, um, I, I, I teach a class at SCA on, on um, presentation and completion, and I really want the students to reckon with these these concepts and you know, the notion of, of of deciding that a work is finished and once it's finished what do you do with it and how do you deliver it to to your viewers yeah. and uh and these are all rules too these are rules you know rules we have to live by um or, or we have to break i'm not telling them they all have to make beautifully durable you know works that they have to have to take a position uh, and justify it. I like that. You know that. what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I like that a lot. Yeah, that's, that's, yeah. that's your responsibility as an artist. Right. Yeah. That's um, how you create I, strong and compelling art, I think, mm -hmm. is by taking a position and justifying it. Like, you have to create your thing and stand behind it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's so much more... But it's also part of my formation. You know, part of my formation as a, as a recovering picture framer. I was in the business of helping people preserve and present their work. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to make a frame that they never had to take the work out of. But this would be the frame for the life of this work. And... Um, and I continue to be very conscious of that. You know, and in that class, we do visit the shop I used to work at, which is probably the best picture framing facility in, in the world. Uh, and it, it's, it, it gets their attention. Are you attracted to, to numbers? Are you using both sides of your brain? As, uh, it, it sounds like, I mean, when you look at your art, it, it has what looks like rules along with it. There's a kind of logic to it, mm. but it's a, it's interesting. I have a I have a friend who teaches at Cornell who I've known since the old days. I mean, I never took his class because he teaches math at Cornell, and I didn't have to take math. I'm terrible at math. I'm good at arithmetic. I can do complex multiplication in my head, but I can't do any advanced math at all. 
but he was looking at some sculptures I was doing that were I connected the the nodes, if you want to call them that, on um, dried grape stems. So you'd have this little dried dried grape stem, and I would connect where the grapes used to be. Oh wow! With toothpicks, and so I'd make these kind of wooden crystal type forms or that networks. Sounds and, so cool. <laughs> You can see them online, I think. I'm going to go look those up. So I can get you some images. And anyway, they, um, he walked in the studio and he said, that's a graph. I said, what? And he got out his, he always carried this pad of paper around to explain things to people. And he, and he showed me how you can write a notation that actually explains how any given graph, and I said, well, this is the number of connections, and this is the number of struts between the connections, and, you know, and of course, you don't necessarily connect each node only once, you connect maybe three times, or, you know, and there are certain constraints that I think I observed, too. Yeah, I didn't, you could, theoretically, you could connect every node to every other node, but it would take a long time, maybe be very physically difficult. Um, but it was quite fun to uh, to have him explain that. He does that a lot mm. when I when I see him. He tries to explain some very difficult topological concept. <laughs> I I do have some familiarity with topology and knot theory, but those are much easier than things like calculus or yeah. have, mm. you know, trigonometry. I'm not an untitled person anymore. I used to be. You know, I, oh, I really? Love titling, so. That was going to be one of my questions. What that's about? Uh, resistance to the verbal. Ah. Resistance to the to the naming of things, and I I finally embraced it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. My son was, I think, four or five, and he was watching me work, and uh, and he sat down to work, and he. So he was drawing, and I was drawing, and he said, uh, so what's that, what's that drawing you're working on going to be titled? And I said, I don't really like titles. I, I think it'll be, you know, I don't. And he just interrupted me while I was uh, muttering, and he said, but everything should have a name. <laughs> <laughs> That's a position. <laughs> so it's an entity. It's he out came, there. Yeah, he, said, yeah he, just, he just shot me down, you know. And so I said, okay, what should the title be? And, you know, he said, oh, that thing looks like uh, the opening credits from a Twilight Zone, so why don't you call it Twilight Zone? There you go. And I, I did. Oh. oh. And, <laughs> and we were off to the races. So it sounds like you have a little assistant there as your son. Yeah, you could say that. I, I had, I, we were going to talk about that. I, I have had assistants, the word assistants, not the person. Right, and I have had, and there are people who assist me, but on a very infrequent basis. There's one person who helps me with the books, and writing the checks, and archiving the art. Who's she's been around for probably twenty years. She's down to about five hours a week. And there's one guy who helps me sometimes in building the sculptures, and sometimes in priming my surfaces or underpainting, and uh, he works about two days a month. So. Mm. And the work I'm doing right now, I really need both to be alone and to not have anybody touch these things but me. 
at this point. I said, I just don't, I don't know what I'm doing and I don't want to know what I'm doing. I want to trust my lizard brain on some level. Yeah, I always, I think that was one of the biggest surprises that I had. Maybe I'm naive, but when I was in art school and learning that these established artists, these big artists had all of these helpers that, that did the artist concepts for them. And that kind of mm -hmm. blew my mind. But now I see that it's pretty commonplace and you're a rarity where, where you're working kind of autonomously in your own head and, and, and doing the physical work uh, yourself. Well, but, but I also, when I work in print shops, I get an enormous amount of help. Mm. So I don't... So depending yeah, on the I, medium. Depending on the medium. But with these hydraulic prints, I mean, they, they had to be laser cut. The blocks were laser cut. And then to ink one of these things takes like four hours or five hours. And then the block has to be cleaned before the next printing. Um... Lithographs, you know, down in Florida, I made two lithographs, I think in 12 printings each. That's just a huge amount of time, days and days and days of, of printers printing. And I'm not, I'm actually not good enough to print these things. I don't know how to ink a, a, a plate. Right. I mean, I did it in college, but that was the last time I did it. But yeah, artists like to be alone. But most artists I know like to be alone. I mean, I, I know some really well-known artists who, when they they love it when their assistants finally leave. <laughs> you know, yeah, uh, that's what I would think. But, yeah, but I mean, I guess things are well, a lot larger than what you can handle too, especially like the sculpture artists. Yeah, and the sculptures. I, I made these two big sculptures that I was describing to you, but I also had some done in bronze out in Washington State at this great foundry. Yeah. And, you know, of course I can't do any of that. I don't know how to pour bronze and make a mold or yeah. anything. You know. Does it ever feel like there's something lost in the translation of trying to communicate an idea to someone who's assisting you? Generally, no, because the people that I've been fortunate enough to work with have worked with so many people and have such experience that they're very sensitive and yeah. thoughtful and and they also have really good ideas. You know, they might say, Hey, have you thought about this? You know, and they show they'll show me an array of patinas and say and I'll say, Oh my god, I didn't know this patina exists. Let's put it on this one. Yeah. You know, so it's collaborative. It's both a very solitary and a very social uh act. Yeah. You know, and, and of course, we visit each other's studios, and and we you know, we get we steal each other's ideas. And, you know, <laughs> uh, so, it is, so it's you know, there is that conversation. You know, going back to this question of inspiration, whatever starts in the yeah. process, you know, it can be a reaction to what someone else has done, mm -hmm. right, somewhere, right? or a continuation of an idea. I will say this, and. No offense to anyone else and how they deal with their assistants, but my, the way I dealt with my so-called assistants, who don't come around much, was that whenever they didn't want to work, they didn't have to work. I never told them they had to come in for any reason, no matter how much pressure was on me. Oh, wow. Because their work became more, is much more important than mine. Can I ask, like, how much influence 
do the galleries have to to what you're working on at any given time or none at all or even if it's just influence in terms of timeline yeah like do you get gallery oh, or sometimes it's uh, you know well in the case of the sculpture i couldn't afford to produce those sculptures the gallery yeah. offered to do that they were aware of these sculptures they had never shown them, and we said, oh, let's do a sculpture show. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we'd, we'd made the bronzes. We, we showed some of the, toothpick, the little toothpick sculptures, which people incorrectly referred to as maquettes. Yep. They weren't. They were just really little sculptures. They were just little. Because <laughs> <laughs> the, 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 the bronzes were blow-ups. They were 3D scans that had been blown up to another scale. That, that's pretty wild. Uh, but then, then when I saw that larger scale, I thought, well, I'm just going to hand-build some sculptures that are almost as big as the bronzes. And I went to the supermarket and bought bamboo skewers for what, the barbecue. Mm -hmm. I was in Italy, actually. I was at the American Academy for a few months. And yeah, so I bought a box of uh, spiedini. That's what they're called in Italian. <laughs> and, I, and I made geometric sculptures. And, and then I tied the intersections with string and started a whole body of work. It wouldn't have happened if I hadn't gone to, to the foundry in Washington State. Mm. And now I've made sculptures that are larger than the bronzes, and they're completely hand-built. And they're just bamboo skewers and wood and string. Wow. So materials cost is $5. <laughs> <laughs> and they've like, got like 100 hours of work in them. Yeah. Know. Yeah, just buy, I buy the cotton string in Chinatown. Oh, really? Yeah. Have you experimented yeah. at all with 3D printing? Yeah, we did. Well, we had to to, to blow up the to blow up the, um, but, not a, but not as a final product. No, because yeah. we translated them into bronze. I am mm. about to make new blocks for the hydraulic prints using. CNC mm -hmm. carving, you know what that is? Yeah, Computer numeric I, control. Sure. So this little robot arm can remove material out of a block of aluminum. And, uh, you know, we were laser cutting these plexi blocks, blocks down in Florida, and they were maddeningly hard to work with. And they <laughs> took hours to clean. And if we can make a single block out of aluminum CNC carved, I think it's going to be amazing. Yeah. Um, and that, and that has now led me to decide to make some hand-cut blocks for hydraulic printing. But I'm going to use it'll be it'll be uh, H human control. I'm going to use a, a router to cut um, large wooden, the large flexible, uh, the large uh, sorry, large um, plywood uh, printing matrices. Oh, interesting. Hopefully, we'll print down in Florida. Oh, just, they'll just get printed by hand. Huh. Yeah, so, so, you know, again, you know, one process leads to another process. Yeah. The qualities of the material interacting with the, with the ideas behind it. Mm -hmm. so pretty, pretty consistent. Uh, a, what, you, what would you call that? A kind of friction between the idea and the material. And then out of that friction comes something to look at. Mm -hmm. That is neither a painting nor a drawing. It's a, it's a, you know, prints, I think, are much more related to sculpture than people think. You know, they're stamped. You know, they have a three-dimensional yeah. quality. Yeah. Texture. Uh, so, 
So, yeah, it'll be next March or April. I think that I'm going to have my next uh, solo show. Yeah. But I have one sculpture up now. Oh, this will, be, this will air in the fall. So I have one of my sculptures on view in a group show in, um, in Manhattan. Oh, yeah. A gallery called Venus. And it's, it's on Madison Avenue, 75th Street. Yeah, it's, well, every artist has their own, you know, arrangement. Different artists work with, you know, so I don't produce that much work. So I, 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 mean, I had a couple of shows with a viewer in Paris who also has a gallery in Geneva. And um, I love the guy and I hope to do more with him. And he's seen some of this new secret work and he's really excited about it. But I don't have enough to give him. I mean, I want to hold on to it all till next year and and we select what goes in the show. If I had a lot of assistants, I'd be just cranking it out. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't, uh, I can't, I can't see that happening. Do you ever create things that you, that you end up really wanting to keep? I used to, I used to. But not anymore? Uh, not so much. No, I like them to go away. <laughs> it makes more room in my head. That's part of what that. It, it, that's one of the ways I sell this presentation completion class to my students. Yeah. yeah. You see, isn't it great to finish it? So you just there's there's another space in your conceptual brain for the next thing. Yeah. So you don't have this sort of incomplete object hanging over your head. You just you know you're free. Yeah. Well, because I would would imagine, too, that you can always look at something and find a way to be like, I wish I had done this differently or this still needs to be whatever. And so if you keep it around, it could just be constantly staring you in the face being like, I'm not done. Yeah. Change me. I tend to not look back too much. And I don't have much of my work up. I have other people's work up at home. I, I love I love looking at other people's art, and it's often very very different from mine. And, and, and yeah. I I love that. Hmm. I've, I've made some very fortunate trades with some wonderful artists. I love that. Oh, cool! I think that's such yeah. a nice idea. <laughs> I think wow. that was one of my favorite things in in college that we would kind of have each other's artwork on e- on each other's walls, and it was always a given that. You know, if you sold it, then I'll take it off my living room wall and you get it back. But it was just always a way to have someone else's kind of energy in front of you mm-hmm. and give space of your own that you didn't have to have it on, you know, racked up on a <laughs> on a wall. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. So how do you know when something is done? It depends on the work. Yeah. It really does. I mean, some work, some work really knows when it's done and it just, as I'm done. I mean, sometimes you're, you know, because some of the work is task-based, you know, I'm making a manifold drawing and I've got to interlock these two complex manifolds. And once they're interlocked, it's done. Right? I guess that's true, yeah. And then I, then I, yeah, then I have to put it in a frame, which is, which is now it's really done, you know. Because now you can hang it on the wall. Hmm. Um, but that's part of what's fun about making new work or, you know, doing the old man drawings. And, you know, some of those things were much more open-ended. And sometimes they looked unfinished. Hmm. And, 
I mean, printmaking, that also happens. So it's pretty, pretty intuitive, I, I think. I feel I have a lot of political passion, and it, I do not express it directly in my work. Yeah. And um, I have no apologies about that. Yeah. Uh, you know, work, we, we express ourselves and try to influence each other at different speeds. And I think that in a lot of visual art, concepts and thoughts and positions seep into the culture at a very slow but extremely powerful rate. Uh, and maybe I'll leave it at that <laughs> in terms of in terms of my position, you know, as it pertains to art that, or my art and social change. Because I believe in a lot of artists. I love a lot of artists who do direct social change with their work and have immediate effects yeah. on on the world. Uh, you know, Miguel Luciano is, works with groups of people. You know, that, helping them. You know, um, do political protests in very innovative, innovative ways. He's flown kites with people in Vieques, Puerto Rico, over the bombing ranges. And, He's done that also in Palestine. Dred mm. Scott, of course, is a classic example. When he when he made the American flag piece in Chicago, that you had to step on an American flag mm. to, to, to interact with the piece, yeah. and it went to the Supreme Court. Wow! And yeah. the right to step on a flag is enshrined in a Supreme Court decision, and the opinion was written by Scalia of all people. <laughs> really, Dred Scott? Yeah. Hmm. So, as I said, there are many, many art worlds nowadays, it's, uh, and it's, it's, a, it's a good thing hmm. in, every, in every way. Can you talk a little bit about your creative process at all? Oftentimes I'm in a, I'm in a conversation with the work I'm making, and the work, once the work gets to a certain point and it has its own momentum, it starts to tell me what to do. I will quote Chuck Close, inspiration is for amateurs. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, not to, not to throw a wet blanket on your, on your question. That's fine. Uh, no, I, I, I don't, you know, uh, it's, a, it's almost a harsh thing to say because, of course, we're, in, we're, 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 we're you know, what is inspiration? Inspiration is like, well, it almost sounds like breathing, right? I mean, it should mm -hmm. be just part of life, you know. Um, and, and, and so what, what generates a work uh, is different depending on how old you are. That's how I see it now. And I think when I, I, think when I turned 50, I started to kind of agree with Chuck's uh, adage. Because I was, you know, I didn't go in the studio saying, gee, what am I going to do today, you know? I already had so many different morphologies, different kinds of work that I've done, and things that I've put in motion, because I'm oftentimes working on more than one thing at a time. Mm -hmm. That it's, which thing am I going to move forward a little bit today, you know? Um, I've been quoted a lot as, as saying, I don't make marks, I make moves, mm -hmm. uh, which is not true. 
I made marks and moves. Sometimes <laughs> 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 the moves are marks, and sometimes the marks are moves. <laughs> and, and there's articulation. I articulate moves sometimes, so there's marks that are not as important to the to the actual uh, thought process behind the work. And do I, you know, sometimes I work from the outside in, and sometimes I work from the inside out. You know, for many, many years, I'm trying to be a little cautious. To dis- I don't want to really describe what I'm doing now because it's very new and very exciting and very, very different in some fundamental ways. Although the few people who've seen things say, wow, but that looks like you, even though it's quite different. I'm known mostly for these enamel and aluminum paintings mm-hmm. that I started making in the early 90s. Uh, and before that, I was working on other kinds of metal and different sizes, and then I kind of standardized the size of 93. And it became increasingly clear that I was trying to make little big paintings. I was trying to pack all the power of a, of, of a painting of you know ambitious scale, which I was very suspicious of and still am. Um, uh, and I realized I was making compressed paintings. There was a lot of pressure in these paintings. Mm-hmm. Mm. So, so they were like trying to be larger, but they were confined to this yeah. this very small scale, like the scale of a kind of head and shoulders, like nineteen by fifteen inches. Yeah. And um, and then I started to scale it up. I think to the to the size of, I guess, 38 by 30, 39 by 30. So, and that was a, that was kind of a constraint that I put on myself. I've since, you know, actually in 93, I also violated that principle and made a series of very large drawings uh, for a poetry book that was going to be very, very small mm-hmm. by a very good friend of mine, Jeffrey Young, who's a poet and runs a a gallery up in Great Barrington, Massachusetts. And he wanted to do a little book called Pockets of Wheat, consisting of little tiny short poems. And he asked me to do the drawings. I said, well, yeah, I'll make these gigantic drawings and we'll shrink them down wow. for the book. Uh-huh. And I I had no market at all. And and uh, I just made these things. And, and actually he sold all 10 of them to a long time who's now a guy who's now a long-time collector of my work. So the process kind of oscillates. You know, I'll, I'll, make, I'll make these intense, small uh, enamel and aluminum things, and then, then I'll make some prints. I'll make some etchings. I'll make some lithographs. I'll work on a big stone lithograph. So, but, but, you know, part of my process is very much about using different t- techniques and materials to make things that are somehow consistent with my my visual thinking. And uh, and so, I've, you know, I've, I work in painting, drawing, printmaking, uh, and sculpture. Uh, and, and, where does, and where does inspiration come from? Where is, uh, you know, what is the thought accelerator that, that bring, brings it to the, to the, to the work. Lately, I've been sort of thinking about sound and somehow physically depicting sound. Oh, interesting. And I, like I think I'll be a little, I'll be a little vague about that too because it's in fine. the new work. But yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I've been, I'm an amateur uh, musician. Mm-hmm. 
and so another person with whom I am married and I we, we sing together and we play music. Oh. Usually for our own enjoyment. I mean, I, we occasionally play publicly, but not very infrequently. Yeah. And I and I and it's that whole idea of vibration and sound and and, the, and even the therapeutic aspect of of playing a guitar. I never really felt good you feel to play a guitar, especially when you can play something reasonably successfully. Yeah. You're holding this vibrating object against your chest. And it, it resonates into your body as well as sending sound out of itself, you know, towards the people listening to you. Yeah. And I've been thinking about that. I think I kind of let it happen with, you know, I think it started happening in the in the work before I realized what it was, and I started to refer to some of these things as resonators or oscillators, and, and uh, I've made some, I've made quite a number of things using this kind of, this sort of core concept, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. And now that I'm aware of it, I think I can manipulate it a little bit, but it's had all kinds of morphologies. It's had paintings, drawings, uh, embossed uh, monoprints I'm doing down in Florida on half-inch thick handmade paper. And these these interactions with materials and with printmakers allow me to, to, to sort of move the work forward. And... And like I said at the beginning of the answer to this question, you know, now I'm I'm 60 years old. I, you know, I don't really think that hard about what I'm going to do when I stare at a blank surface. You know, I think, you know, which thing am I going to do? How am I going to... How am I going to make this experience both meaningful for me and hopefully meaningful for people looking at the thing? Yeah, and, not, and how can I do this without repeating myself mm-hmm. too much? You know, kind of make it fun or disturbing or both. You know, um, and I mentioned those uh, figurative things. I, uh, I I I got very excited about doing them when I started doing them because they were just so so such a violation of everything I believed in, in a way, you know. Um, they weren't really rule-based. They weren't really, right, marks becoming moves. But then as I got into making them, I realized they actually, you know, a face is a structure that you have to somehow reckon with. Yeah. And I realized that, you know, all art-making is rule-based on some level, at some point. You know, even the, uh, what seems to be the most subjective work. Uh, You know, say somebody like Judith Bernstein, who's known for painting, you know, practically pornographic images, you know, penises shaped like guns with bullets firing out of them and, you know, (laughs) horrendous screeds against Donald Trump and, you know, painted in this incredibly raw way, you know, She's obeying her own kind of set of constraints, you know. And there's some, some of these are constraints against, like, don't paint over that. Let that one mark speak for what you're, what you're trying to express. 
when you buy a, a canvas or a, a piece of paper or a block of marble, you know, it's, it's got a certain size and it's got a certain... Yeah. It has many material qualities that you have to somehow reckon with, whether you obey or disobey the, the laws of physics or conservation or durability mm -hmm. and all that, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm very interested in those questions, too. Yeah. But I, I, I teach a class at SCA on, on um, presentation and completion, and I really want the students to reckon with these, these concepts and you know, the notion of deciding that a work is finished, and once it's finished, what do you do with it, and how do you deliver it to, to your viewers? Yeah. And uh, and these are all rules too. These are rules, you know, rules we have to live by, um, or or we have to break. I'm not telling them they all have to make beautifully durable, you know, works. So they have to they have to take a position uh, and justify it. I like. You know that. what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I like that a lot. Saying that you have to take a position and justify it. Um. Yeah, that's that's yeah. that's your responsibility as an artist. Right. Are yeah. are you attracted to to numbers? Are you using both sides of your brain? As it it sounds like, I mean, and when you look at your art, it it has what looks like rules along with it. Well, there's a kind of logic to it, hmm. but it's a it's interesting. I have a I have a friend who teaches at Cornell who I've known since the old days. I mean, I never took his class because he teaches math at Cornell. And I didn't have to take math. I'm terrible at math. I'm good at arithmetic. I can do complex multiplication in my head. But I can't do any advanced math at all. But he was looking at some sculptures I was doing that were... I connected the, the nodes, if you want to call them that, on um, dried grape stems. So you'd have this little dried dried grape stem, and I would connect where the grapes used to be oh, wow. with toothpicks. And so I'd make these kind of wooden crystal-type forms or that networks. sounds so cool. <laughs> you can see them online, I think. I'm going to go look those up. Or I can get you some images. And anyway, they, um, he walked in the studio and he said, that's a graph. I said, what? And he got out his, he always carries this pad of paper around to explain things to people. And he, and he showed me how you can write a notation that actually explains how any given graph, you know, so this is the number of connections and this is the number of struts between the connections. And, you know, and of course, you don't necessarily connect each node only once. You connect maybe three times, or, you know, and there are certain constraints that I think I observed too. Yeah, I didn't. You could theoretically you could connect every node to every other node, but it would take a long time. Maybe be very physically difficult. Um, but it was quite fun to uh, to have him explain that. He does that a lot mm. when I when I see him tries to explain some very difficult topological concept. <laughs> I I do have some familiarity with top. Topology and not theory, but those are much easier than things like calculus or yeah. advanced, hmm. you know, trigonometry. There are some of like your that. 
some of your pieces that strike me as looking like topology from above. Not no, you're thinking of topography. Topography. I'm thinking of topography. Okay. Wait, what yes. is topology? Well, there is. The, yeah, I, I do, I <laughs> Maybe do I don't that. know. Topology is is the is the geometry of, <gasps> of distortable surfaces. Oh, cool. I like that. So topologically, That's even better than that topography. That sounds really interesting. <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, okay. Topology is very, very weird and interesting. Very, very interesting. Um, and I have referenced it explicitly, actually, huh. at, at times. I've done the, I did a group of drawings called manifolds, mm-hmm. and um, they, were, they were toruses. A torus is a donut shape, just a ring. Mm-hmm. But a, a torus can be distorted, right? Mm-hmm. So you can actually draw a topological equivalence between a coffee cup, a coffee mug, oh, a coffee cup, tea cup, and a torus because it's got a hole in it, right? Yeah. A coffee cup has a hole where you pick up the cup, right? The mm-hmm. handle. So that's topologically equivalent to a donut. But what if you have a torus with two holes in it? So it's called a two torus, right? Oh. What's the you know, and then then there's a four torus and an eight torus. So I was making these drawings of like seventy two toruses interlocked with forty eight toruses, and you know, drawing grids and generating these kind of topological forms. But wow. and, and I called the manifolds in a kind of uh, irresponsible way because I'm not sure if they really if they are technically really manifolds by the common definition of them but I thought of manifolds as as uh, um, passages or a place between spaces you can pass through a manifold you know like um, in an engine there's an intake manifold there's okay. an exhaust manifold you know? yeah Physicalizing that. I'm not. I, I. I'm not an untitled person anymore. I used to be. You know. I, I, oh I really? Love titling, so, that yeah. was going to be one of my questions. Actually, is like what that's about, or uh, resistance to the verbal. Ah. Resistance to the to the naming of things, and yeah. I. I finally embraced it. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. My son was, I think, four or five. And he was watching me work, and uh, and he sat down to work, and he so he was drawing, and I was drawing, and he said, uh, "So what's that? What's that drawing you're working on going to be titled?" And I said, "I don't really like titles. I, I think it'll, be, you know, I don't." And he just interrupted me while I was kind of muttering, and he said, "But everything should have a name." <laughs> 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 That's a position. <laughs> so it's an entity. It's he out came, there. Yeah, he said, yeah. He just he just shot me down, you know. And so I said, okay, what should the title be? And you know, he said, oh, that thing looks like uh, the opening credits from a Twilight Zone. So why don't you call it Twilight Zone? There you go. And I, so I did. Oh. Huh. And, <laughs> and we were off to the races. He became a very good titler. So it sounds like you have a little assistant there as your son. <laughs> oh, assistant. Uh, yeah, you could say that. I, I've had, I, we were going to talk about that. I, I have had assistants 
the word assistant, not the person. Right. And I have had, and there are people who assist me, but on a very infrequent basis. There's one person who helps me with the books and writing the checks and archiving the, the art. She's, she's been around for probably 20 years. She's down to about five hours a week. And there's one guy who helps me sometimes in building the sculptures and sometimes in priming my surfaces or underpainting. And uh, he works about two days a month. Mm. And the work I'm doing right now, I really need both to be alone and to not have anybody touch these things but me at this point. I just don't... I don't know what I'm doing, and I don't want to know what I'm doing. I want to trust my lizard brain on some level. Yeah. Yeah. I always, I think that was one of the biggest surprises that I had. Maybe I'm naive, but when I was in art school and learning that these established artists, these big artists had all of these helpers that, that did the artist concepts for them. And that kind of mm-hmm. blew my mind. But now I see that it's pretty commonplace and you're a rarity where where you're working kind of autonomously in your own head and 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 doing the physical work um, yourself um, well but but I also when I work in print shops I get an enormous amount of help mm. yeah. so I don't so depending I, yeah, on the I, medium depending on the medium but right. well these hydraulic prints I mean uh, they had to be laser cut. The blocks were laser cut, and then to ink one of these things takes like four hours or five hours, and then the block has to be cleaned before the next printing. Um, lithographs, you know, I, down in Florida, I made two lithographs. I think they're twelve printings each. That's just a huge amount of time, days and days and days of of printers printing. And I'm not. I'm actually not good enough to print these things. I don't know how to ink a, a, a plate. Right. I mean, I did it in college, but that was the last time I did it. But, but yeah, generally, yeah. Uh, yeah, artists like to be alone. So most artists I know like to be alone. I mean, I, I know some really well-known artists who, when they, they love it when their assistants finally leave, <laughs> you know. I mean, I guess things are oh. a lot larger than what you can handle, too, especially like the sculpture artists. Yeah, and the sculptures. I, I made these toothpick sculptures that I was describing to you, but I also had some done in bronze out in Washington State at this great yeah. boundary. Yeah. And, you know, of course I can't do any of that. I don't know how to pour bronze and make a mold or yeah. anything. Does it ever feel like there's something lost in the translation of trying to communicate an idea to someone who's assisting you? Generally, no, because the people that I've been fortunate enough to work with have worked with so many people and have such experience that they're very sensitive and yeah. thoughtful and and they also have really good ideas. You know, They might say, Hey, have you thought about this? And on the show, they'll show me an array of patinas and say, and I'll say, oh my God, I didn't know this patina exists. Let's put it on this one. Yeah. You know, so it's collaborative. It's both a very solitary and a very social um, 
of course we visit each other's studios and and we you know, we get we steal each other's ideas and you know. <laughs> uh, and, and so it's you know, there is that conversation, you know, going back to this question of inspiration, whatever starts in this yeah. process, you know, it can be a reaction to what someone else has done mm-hmm. you know, or a continuation of an idea. But I will say this, and no offense to anyone else and how they deal with their assistants, but my, the way I dealt with my so-called assistants who don't come around much was that Whenever they didn't want to work, they didn't have to work. I never told them they had to come in for any reason, no matter how much pressure was on me. Oh, wow. Because their work came more, is much more important than mine. Can I ask, like, how much influence do the galleries have to, to what you're working on at any given time? Or none at all. Or even if it's just influence in terms of timeline. Oh, it's, or sometimes it's, uh, you know, well, in the case of the sculpture, I couldn't afford to produce those sculptures. The gallery yeah. offered to do that. They were aware of these sculptures. They had never shown them, and we said, oh, let's do a sculpture show. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we'd, we'd made the bronzes. We, we showed some of the toothpick, the little toothpick sculptures, which people incorrectly referred to as maquettes. Yep. They weren't. They're just really little sculptures. They're just little. Because <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the bronzes were blow-ups. They were 3D scans that had been blown up to another scale. That, that's pretty wild. Uh, but then, then when I saw that larger scale, I thought, well, I'm just going to hand-build some sculptures that are almost as big as the bronzes. And I went to the supermarket and bought bamboo skewers for the barbecue. Mm-hmm. I was in Italy, actually. I was at the American Academy for a few months. And, yeah, so I bought a box of uh, spiedini. That's what they're called in Italian. <laughs> and, I, and I made geometric sculptures. And, and then I tied the intersections with string and started a whole body of work. It wouldn't have happened if I hadn't gone to to the foundry in Washington State. Mm. And now I've made sculptures that are larger than the bronzes, and they're completely hand-built. And they're just bamboo skewers and wood and string. Wow. So materials cost is $5. <laughs> and they like, have 100 hours of work in them. Yeah. It's hilarious. I, just buy, I buy the cotton string in Chinatown. Have yeah. you experimented yeah. at all with 3D printing at all? Yeah, we did. Well, we had to to, to blow up the to blow up the um, but not as a, sculptures, but not as a final product. No, because yeah. we translated them into bronze. I am mm. about to make new blocks for the hydraulic prints using cnc mm-hmm. carving you know about it yeah, computer numeric I, control sure so this little robot arm can remove material out of a block of aluminum and uh, you know we were laser cutting these plexi blocks blocks down in florida and they were maddeningly hard to work with <laughs> it took hours to clean and if we can make a single block out of aluminum cnc carved i think it's going to be amazing yeah, um, and that and that has now led me to decide to make some hand cut 
blocks for hydraulic printing, but I'm going to use it'll be it'll be uh, H C human control. I'm going to use a, a router to cut um, large wooden, the large plywood uh, printing matrices. Oh, interesting. Hopefully, we'll print down in Florida. Oh, just they'll just get printed by hand. Hmm. Yeah. So, so you know, again, you know, one process leads to another process. Yeah. The qualities of the material interacting with the with the ideas behind it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Pretty pretty consistent. Uh, what you what would you call that? A kind of friction between the idea and the material, and then out of that friction comes something to look at mm-hmm. that is neither a painting nor a drawing. It's a, it's, it's a, you know, prints, I think, are much more related to sculpture than people think. You know, they're stamped. You know, they have a three-dimensional yeah. quality. Yeah. Texture. Do you ever create things that you, that you end up really wanting to keep that you don't want to sell? To. or Yeah. I used to. I used to. But not anymore? Uh, so, not so much. No, I like them to go away. <laughs> it makes more room in my head. That's part of what that, it, it, that's one of the ways I sell this presentation completion class to my students. Yeah. yeah. You see, isn't it great to finish it? So you just, there's, there's another space in your conceptual brain for the next thing. Yeah. And you don't have this sort of incomplete object hanging over your head you just you know you're free yeah you're free well because I would, move on. I would imagine too that you can always look at something and find a way to be like oh, i wish i had done this differently or this still needs to be whatever and so if you keep it around it could just be constantly staring you in the face being like i'm not done yeah change me i tend to not look back too much and i don't I can understand. Have much that. of my work up. I have other people's work up at home. I, I love I love looking at other people's art, and often it's very very different from mine. And, and, and yeah. I I love that. Hmm. And I've made, I've made some very fortunate trades with some wonderful artists. I love that. Oh, cool! I <laughs> think that's such a nice idea. I think that was one of my favorite things in in college that we would kind of have each other's artwork on e- on each other's walls, and it was always a given that, you know, if you sold it, then I'll take it off my living room wall and you get it back. But it was just always a way to have someone else's kind of energy in front of you. Mm-hmm. So, how do you know when something is done? Do you like do you take time and like look at it? day after day and, and then decide that it just is finished or does it speak to you or do you just at some point have to cut yourself off? How do you know? It depends on the work. Yeah. It really does. I mean, some work some work really knows when it's done and it just says, I'm done. I mean, sometimes you're, you know, because some of the work is task-based, you know, I'm making a manifold drawing and I've got to interlock these two complex manifolds and once they're interlocked, it's done. Right? I guess that's true. Yeah. That's and then I, then I, yeah, then I, I could put it in a frame, which, is, which is, now it's really done. You know, because now you can hang it on the wall. Hmm. Um, 
but that's part of what's fun about making new work or, you know, doing the old man drawings. You know, some of those things were much more open-ended. And sometimes they looked unfinished. Hmm. And, uh, I mean, printmaking, that also happens. So it's, it's pretty intuitive, I, I think. You know, I have a lot of political passion and it, I do not express it directly in my work. Yeah. And um, I have no apologies about that. Yeah. Uh, you know, work, we, we express ourselves and try to influence each other at different speeds. And I think that in a lot of visual art, concepts and thoughts and positions seep into the culture at a very slow but extremely powerful rate. Uh, and maybe I'll leave it at that <laughs> in terms of in terms of my position at, you know what as it pertains to art that, or my art and social change because I believe in a lot of artists I love a lot of artists who do direct social change with their work and have immediate effects yeah. on on the world uh, you know Miguel Luciano is, works with groups of people, you know, that helping them, you know, um, do political protests in very innovative, innovative ways. He's flown kites with people in Vieques, Puerto Rico, over the bombing ranges. And he's done that also in Palestine. Mm. Dred Scott, of course, is the classic example when he, when he made the American flag piece in Chicago. You had to step on an American flag mm. to, to, to interact with the piece, yeah. and it went to the Supreme Court. Wow. And yeah. the right to step on a flag is enshrined in a Supreme Court decision, and the opinion was written by Scalia, of all people. <laughs> really? Dredd Scott. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. So, a, as I said, there are many, many art worlds nowadays, It's uh, and it's, it's a... It's a good thing mm. in every in every way. <laughs>